Okay, the book of Joel. Uh, this is a rather uh, intimidating book of only three chapters because, man, I mean, just the, the symbolism here cries out for some meaning, and uh, people are kind of all over the map in terms of uh, what this book means. Of course, the kind of the dominant imagery that stands out uh, are the locusts that come in. So we're going to try to answer that one question. Uh, we could spend a long time just talking about um, authorship and when this was written. Okay, and, and there's a lot of debate. No one really knows for sure exactly where this book fits in. And we're just going to ignore all of that because um, um, just, to, just to focus here on the locusts is going to take up our entire time here. And, uh, you know, the book of Joel, it's uh, surprising. Um, you know, Job, such a, a massive book. Well, where do you find uh, the book of Job uh, discussed in uh, the New Testament? It's kind of surprising. You don't find many references there. But Joel here, Peter... Of course, we have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and he would pull this uh, verse out of Joel. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and we could spend a long time talking about that, which would be interesting. Um, Paul, in making his point in Romans that there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, would quote the book of Joel um, to make that point. Um, Jesus in Mark and also in Matthew, where he uh, kind of describes this uh, apocalyptic vision for what sounds like uh, perhaps the destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the world, all kinds of things, uh, uses uh, very dramatic imagery that comes from Joel about uh, the, after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light, um, and all that again is from Joel. Okay, so there are, this, this book is uh, referenced quite a bit in the New Testament, and of course, it's hard to ignore the extensive description of locusts also in the book of Revelation. Okay, so we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, here at the end. Okay, so we're, we're going to, again, focus here on the locusts. I don't know if any of you have seen a cloud of locusts um, coming in. This was a, a boy trying to hit them with a, a broomstick in, in Mexico. Okay, but what do these locusts refer to? We'll just read a little bit. Here in Joel 1.6, it's an army of locusts has attacked our land. They're powerful and too many to count. Their teeth are as sharp as those of a lion. Okay, we'll, we'll pull out a few more quotes here, but I'll just say for now, most interpreters, at least in, in the reading um, that I've done on this, seem to take one of two, maybe three positions. One is that these are literal locusts, okay, which will come at some point as a very devastating plague on the earth. Or uh, probably more commonly that these are symbolic of uh, future military powers of conquest. And it seems like some kind of uh, merge the two. Okay, that uh, this is uh, in, in some way an act of God's wrath on the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, the day of the Lord is mentioned several times in, in the book of Joel. Okay, so uh, this seems where, where most people um, fall in on this book. And I think kind of a logical question. I mean, remember our kind of our thesis for our Bible study here is uh, we're trying to understand uh, what we can about God, about God's character. So I think kind of a basic question to ask is um, who's in charge of the locusts? Um, do the locusts have a king? Well, if they're, if they're literal locusts, is God directing them? If it's an army, is God in charge of the army? Um, how, you know, who are we um, saying is behind the locusts? It's interesting. Locusts naturally have no king. Not like a pack of dogs where you have an alpha dog that is the leader and lots of other examples. And here we can even quote this in Proverbs. Locusts, they have no king, but they move in formation. Okay, but the locusts here in, in Joel uh, clearly seem to have a leader. In Joel 1.15, the day of the Lord is near, okay, and, and after this 
description of the locust. The day of the Lord is near, the day when the Almighty brings destruction. What terror that day will bring. And I like to look at a lot of different um, versions. And so I'm just flipping through. And, and like the Net Bible has almost 80,000 translators notes. So you can really see how they come up with this. And I was rather shocked to see their uh, translation of the, this verse. It will come as destruction from the divine destroyer. And they had some reasons for translating it that way. Okay, well, this would seem to um, put uh, ownership here or direction on the part of God uh, for the locusts. Okay, let's just read a little bit of the description here. It will be a dark and gloomy day, a black and a cloudy day. The great army of locusts advances like darkness, spreading over the mountains. There has never been anything like it, and there never will be again. And the description is really, it's like, boy, we've never seen anything like this from the beginning of the world. Nothing like it. They rush against the city. They run over the walls. They climb up the houses and go in through windows like thieves. The earth shakes as they advance. The sky trembles. The sun and the moon grow dark. There's that description again. And the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders commands to his army. Hey, there it is again, his army. The troops that obey him are many and mighty. Okay, so, so what's the meaning of all this? Well, um, there, a little ambiguity is presented here as we read on. Because uh, after the locusts uh, destroy, then God would say, I will remove the locust army that came from the north. Okay, so... God seems to be destroying here his own army. What does that mean? I will remove the locust army that came from the north. Their dead bodies will stink. I will destroy them because of all they have done to you. I will give you back what you lost in the years when swarms of locusts ate, should say, ate your crops. It was I who sent this army against you. Okay, so maybe a little bit of ambiguity, but most of it in Joel certainly seemed to suggest that, that God is um, the, uh, the, the force here behind the locusts. Okay, so I think uh, before we just try to answer this, we need to come back to something uh, we haven't talked about in a while, but we need to have some framework for interpreting the Bible. Okay, um, and so I'll just review. Here are, there are many points that could be made, but I'll just make uh, three main points here. One is we have to read the Bible as a whole. Um, this is so important that we not read uh, certainly a verse, uh, a chapter, even a book, in isolation, okay, we have to take in the whole Bible. Now, this involves a lot of work, okay, but um, th this is really the only safe way, I think, that we can interpret something like this. Um, I could just say, boy, I've been, I think since 2003, started a Bible study with medical students and had a chance to go through it several times since then, and uh, it just, it really seems like it's limitless. I mean, it's always something new, trying to pull in different dimensions. It's, it's quite deep. Uh, I have to say, I've, in the last month, I've been preparing a lecture for a group of dentists who want me to talk to them about facial pain. That wasn't much work. I mean, yeah, I had to pull up a bunch of articles on trigeminal neuralgia and read them and probably will never read them again, okay? But it's not like that with the Bible. This, this Bible study was, was uh, much, much more work because it's, it's complicated, trying to pull together many different things, okay? But it's kind of an exciting journey to be on. Uh, the danger of not reading the Bible as a whole, I mean, we know this just from reading books or uh, watching movies. Uh, my wife and I watched this movie. It wasn't a great movie. Uh, what was it called? Night versus Day. It was Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. And in the beginning of the movie, well, you kind of want to root for Tom Cruise a little bit, but he does some things that are, seems rather indefensible. 
isn't until the very end of the movie that you say, oh, okay, ah, now that makes sense. Now I can understand. He really was the good guy um, all along. And in some ways, the Bible is like that. We read on, okay, about uh, all kinds of things. Stoning of Achan's family, all, you know, she-bears coming out of the woods and mauling youths, okay, and uh, lots of troubling things come up. But we have to take in the whole Bible. And but I think the key point is Jesus... In, in some ways, Jesus is the end of the story. Okay? Jesus is kind of the aha moment where everything comes together. And we say, okay, now, now that, that makes sense, or at least more things come together. So he has to be the light that illuminates the whole book. And so could we ask here, you know, we, we haven't been through the Gospels in a few years now in this Bible study, but uh, is Jesus the divine destroyer? Okay, is he the king of the locust army? Now, we can't really assign this to the Father because, of course, Jesus said, the Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father over and over again. He said, we are the same in character. Okay? Well, uh, maybe he is. Let's, let's go through it. At least that question comes up if we're elevating Jesus. Remember, who did away with a lot of things in the Old Testament. If we struggle with eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, Jesus comes along and says, no longer. There was a time for that. Okay, that's not the way I run my kingdom. Love your enemies. So he, he did away with a lot of these things that are confusing in the Old Testament. And then I think, uh, for me, uh, a very important uh, point is that we incorporate a cosmic conflict. God is not the only one, not the only acting subject in the Bible. God has an enemy who is actively involved. And we've discussed before why uh, the enemy is so veiled in the Old Testament. Very few references to Satan in the Old Testament. Come to the New Testament. First thing Jesus does, goes out into the wilderness and uh, defeat Satan. You know, death on the cross is described in terms of uh, defeating Satan. Now the ruler of this world will be judged. And again and again, he's you know, exposed, defeated uh, as the Bible uh, moves on. And so as kind of as part of this cosmic conflict, I've said this before, but it kind of fits in this category that in the Bible, and I'll give some examples of this very quickly, God is often described as doing what he instead allows to occur. And I think we really, uh, I'll, I'll try to make a case for this. We've done it in this Bible study before, but I, I think we have to see that as being true. That God is often described as doing what he instead allows um, to occur. And this point being so important here for uh, at least how I would like to put together the book of Joel, uh, we need to do a quick review on things we've done here in the last uh, year and a half or so in the Old Testament. Okay, probably our best example here. I've used several times, but in 2 Samuel, remember David gave a census. It was a bad idea. It made God very unhappy. But the description here in 2 Samuel was, was that the Lord was angry at Israel again, and he made David think it would be a good idea to count the people in Israel and Judah. And again, if we're plucking that verse out, that's troubling. You know, James said God does not tempt to evil. He seems to be tempting to evil in this verse. Okay, but we read the exact same account in a book written much later, First Chronicles, and it's completely the opposite. Satan wanted to bring trouble on the people of Israel, so he made David decide to take a census. Okay, so we have this uh, complete um, polar opposite way of describing David um, giving the census. Okay, we, we need to incorporate verses like this uh, into uh, our understanding of, of the Bible and the way our world is. Uh, book of Job, of course, if we're reading the book of Job, this is another rare reference to Satan in the Old Testament. We know from the first chapter that Satan was the one who left God's presence and did all the destructive things to Job. Okay, it's very clear to us as a reader. It wasn't clear to Job. He had no idea what was happening to him. Okay? And, and when he 
complains, he complains to God. Why have you done this to me? And the, the lone survivor here of one of these destructive actions, it was pretty clear to him, who was involved, the fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who's escaped to tell you. Okay, again, us as, as readers here, we know that Satan left God's presence and that he did these things to Job. Okay, so um, in the Old Testament, God does everything. He does it all. Um, in this book, verse in uh, Isaiah, I create both light and darkness. I bring both blessing and disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Okay, we've discussed before why it is described this way in the Old Testament. Okay, uh, but uh, now I want to just very quickly try to make a, a bigger case for that. In Ruth, remember Naomi discusses her troubled life and she would say, don't call me Naomi, which means sweet. Call me Mara, which is bitter, because the Almighty, and this is the same Hebrew word that the Net Bible translates in Joel as the divine punisher, the Almighty or the strong one has made my life very bitter. And again, we take this uh, just as it reads. Um, you know, what, was God actively involved in Naomi's life to make it bitter? Okay, we know this, has a, this story has a good ending. Okay, but what was God's involvement in the death of her sons and all the bad things that happened to her up at this point? First uh, Samuel, our first uh, Bible study uh, of this year, we went through all of the references. We could do this in many books, but we'll use First Samuel as an example here. Hannah couldn't have children, and God is responsible. The Lord had kept her childless. Okay, again, is that literally true? She would have had children. God intervened to prevent her from having children? Well, we read on that when she did have children, again, the Lord does it all in the Old Testament. The Lord kills and restores to life. He sends people to the world of the dead and brings them back again. This is Hannah's uh, prayer. He makes some people poor and others rich. Is that true? He humbles some and makes others great. Again, God's responsible for everything um, in the Old Testament. We just move over one chapter in Samuel. Uh, reading about uh, Eli's wicked sons, and their death here is predicted. But they would not listen to their father, for the Lord had decided to kill them. Hey, we read on a few verses. They go out into battle, and they're killed by the Philistines. Okay, so again, the description is the Lord's going to kill them, and uh, here they're, they're killed in battle. Three times in 1 Samuel, we have God sending evil spirits against Saul. One day an evil spirit from the Lord took control of Saul. Three times. Remember, Saul would throw the javelin against David. Okay, um, and we're grappling to understand this, but does God dispatch evil spirits from time to time um, that cause people to do things like Saul did? We read about Nabal, remember, who was uh, so mean to David that sometime after this he had a stroke, was completely paralyzed. Okay, for most common cause of this, for the sophomores here, pontine stroke or hemorrhage can lead to complete paralysis. Mortality rate is over 80%, even in 21st century medicine. Okay, about an 80% mortality. Okay, but with Nabal, something more was needed. Some 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Okay, this is how David would describe the demise of Saul before it happened. By the living Lord, David continued, I know that the Lord himself will kill Saul. Okay, how is God going to kill Saul? Either when his time comes to die a natural death or when he dies in battle. Okay, we, we don't uh, express it that way. But again, in David's mind, he'll kill him one of two ways. 
He'll die a natural death or when he dies in battle. And, of course, we know the story. Saul fell on his sword, committed suicide in battle. So it's surprising then to read on a few verses later, so the Lord killed him. Or in the King James, thus God slew Saul after his suicide. Again, we're just making a point here for the, the God's involvement in everything in the Old Testament. Okay, even in the, uh, the Ten Commandments where we think, boy, we're going to get it straight here. Nothing that's going to be the, the slightest bit misleading or that would require interpretation. That in the Ten Commandments, God says, I bring punishment on those who hate me and on their descendants down to the third and fourth generation. Okay, this is troubling. Something bad happens to us. Okay, and well, maybe it was something your great-great-grandfather did. And God is inflicting that generations down the road. Again, that's a, a bit troubling. But again, I think if we take the Bible as a whole, the book of Ezekiel very clearly has God saying, I do not punish the children for the sins of their parents. Okay, and, but yet this, this mindset really is, is quite prevalent. The disciples certainly had that mindset. Okay, remember they saw the blind man and they asked Jesus, whose sin caused him to be born blind? Must have been his sin. Was it his own or his parents' sin? Okay, and I like how Jesus just kind of nails this. His blindness has nothing to do with his sins or his parents' sins. So again, if we were to go into this subject, I think we could see, yes, this is true. There is punishment to the third and fourth generation. But is it at God's hands? You know, if uh, you, and we know this uh, from, from good scientific evidence. If someone's an alcoholic and they beat their kids, okay, that has a long-lasting effect through generations. There is a definite link between the sins of the parents and what happens to the kids. But I think we would express this uh, maybe in a different way. So here in, in this time, we see God speaking a language I think that people can understand in that time. Okay, and I'll give you just a last example here. The, the children of Israel go out into the wilderness, and remember, it's rebellion, 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 and they want to go back to Egypt. They don't like the manna. Okay, everything is just, uh, they, they just want God to leave them alone. Okay, and finally he did. And then we have this description. The Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many Israelites were bitten and died. That seems pretty clear. We take the Bible as it reads. Um, I got a rather angry email several months ago from someone who said, well, don't make all these you know, difficult, uh, complicated arguments for things. Uh, just take a, a plain, thus say the Lord. And they quoted an author on that. And so I, I thought, okay, this is interesting. Here on this verse here, I, I looked up what that particular author, this individual was talking about, had to say. And uh, this was from a book called Patriarchs and Prophets. And here was a description. God had subdued before them the fierce beasts of prey and the venomous reptiles of the forest and the desert. And remember, their shoes didn't wear out. I mean, they were miraculously preserved. If with all these tokens of his love, the people still continued to complain, the Lord would withdraw his protection. And because they had been shielded by divine power, they had not realized the countless dangers by which they were continually surrounded. As the protecting hand of God was removed from Israel, great numbers of the people were attacked by these venomous creatures." And God had preserved them. But God has this choice here, or a dilemma, maybe we should say, that when finally we just say, we don't want anything to do with you, God, his choice is to override our free will or to respect our free will. And it seems that God values freedom uh, supremely. And so he respected their free will choice, and then they suffered consequences. And I just find it interesting, you know, Satan, the, the ancient serpent of old, that it's snakes that, that are involved here in, in biting the people in the desert. So, 
yes, we would take the Bible as it reads, but we have to put the whole Bible together in understanding things like this. Okay, so I want to make three arguments here about the locusts. The first two, um, maybe I wouldn't feel that strongly about, but I think they're interesting points. Some of them are valid, I hope. Uh, The last one, I think when we get to Revelation, I think we can make a good case for who these locusts refer to. Okay, so locusts, thieves, and evil shepherds. Uh, these, uh, the locusts are described as climbing into the house. They go through the windows like thieves. Okay, so again, we're trying to des- decide who's the agency of this. Is God behind it? Who's behind it? Okay, who comes in like thieves? Well, the day of the Lord, remember that's a phrase again and again in the book of Joel. It will come like a thief in the night. Okay, the question is, uh, is Jesus the thief? Uh, who's the thief? Well, the, the emphasis here is that it will come suddenly. Okay, when we talk about a thief, it will come suddenly. Okay, but again, is Jesus the one who breaks into the house? Of course, our, our image of Jesus is he knocks, right? I stand at the door and knock. We, do we have our image of Jesus breaking the door down um, to come in? And uh, Jesus would talk about um, thieves. And uh, this incredible description here. Now, he's, I think he's, he's dealing with the deception of the Pharisees when he tells this. But he told the people here three times about thieves. I'm telling you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. And he'd repeat it again. All others who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. And I leave out a lot of the verses here, but in between, Jesus is saying, my sheep know me. They know my, my voice. Remember the meaning of that word, to know. Okay, there's an intimate relationship there. And there's another thief, shepherd, Okay, I think in the immediate context, he's referring to the Pharisees. Okay, but they come in another way. The thief comes only in order to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come in order that you might have life, life in all its fullness. I am the good shepherd who's willing to die for the sheep. Now, where do we get this? We're always looking for an Old Testament reference here as we're reading the New Testament. Where do we get this reference for the good shepherd and an evil shepherd? Well, that comes from Zechariah. Okay, and... Um, so if we turn to Zechariah, it's amazing the parallels with Jesus um, here in this description of the good shepherd and Zechariah. The good shepherd is paid 30 pieces of silver, my wages. Okay? And then we have this description of another shepherd. And then the Lord said to me, once again, act the part of a shepherd, this time a worthless one. I have put a shepherd in charge of my flock, but he does not help the sheep that are threatened by destruction, nor does he look for the lost or heal those that are hurt. Or feed the healthy. Instead, he eats the meat of the fattest sheep and tears off their hooves. That worthless shepherd is doomed. He has abandoned his flock. War will totally destroy his power. His arm will wither and his right eye will go blind. So again, we're we're contrasting here between uh, the good shepherd, the evil shepherd, who's the thief in the description in John. Okay, so uh, maybe we want to consider what the thief might mean. Okay, another point that I find quite interesting is these locusts come from the north. And the coming from the north is very significant in the Old Testament because that's where the gods come from. Okay, the description in Isaiah 14, we've quoted so many times. Remember, this is talking about, um, I think we could make a, a good case. This is referring to Satan's and his fall. Okay, we'll leave out that part, but notice, you were determined to climb up to heaven and to place your throne above the highest stars You thought you would sit like a king on the mountain in the north where the gods assemble. Okay, and and so many times in the Bible, you know, Satan's desire is worship. 
Okay, you remember, he even asked Jesus to get down on his knees and worship him uh, in the wilderness of temptation. Okay, so Satan desires to sit in the north. And what can we say about the north? Well, again, beautiful in elevation. This is Psalm 48. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Okay, so we have this uh, contested territory here in the north, Mount Zion. So the locusts come from the north, okay, and there's another army that comes from the north. And I know I'm going through a lot of uh, material here, and I don't have time to make a, a case for this. Dr. Tonstead has done a lot of work on this, which is excellent, that in Ezekiel 38, Gog is in, in many ways a, a parallel to the demonic or satanic activity in the book of Revelation. Gog and Magog, it, it's very interesting. But the, the army that comes out in Ezekiel, will set, Gog will set out to come from your place in the far north, leading a large, powerful army of soldiers from many nations, all of them on horseback. Okay, and God destroys Gog's army, just like he destroys the locusts, and it takes seven months to bury the corpses where they are buried, okay, where they buried east of the Dead Sea. Birds are called to feast on the dead bodies. Okay, does this remind any of you of a description in, in Revelation? And when the locust army in Joel is destroyed, their front ranks will be driven into the Dead Sea. So the, the death here in the same area, their dead bodies will stink. Okay, and I, I can't resist here. This is just uh, fascinating here that uh, the Septuagint translation of, of Amos 7 verse 1 says, Then the Lord came and showed me, look, a breed of locusts as they were coming early in the morning, led by Gog, the grasshopper king, or Gog, the locust king. Okay? So, that's interesting. I, I wouldn't uh, bet my life on all of these things, but if we're trying to pull all of this together, I think we could make a great case for Gog uh, being uh, Satan. Okay? And I think we could also see a lot of interesting parallels between that army that was destroyed and the locust army that was destroyed. Okay, but now this is where I would want to... Um, really come home to something. The locusts in Revelation. Uh, we spent some time when we went through Isaiah uh, going over the book of Revelation. And so clearly the, the locusts that are described here, we're always looking for an Old Testament reference. And uh, that's the book of Joel. So the first angel blew his trumpet. Hail, fire mixed with blood came pouring down on the earth. One third of the earth was burned up. And just when you read through the trumpet sequence, it's one third, one third, one third, one third, 28 times. Everything is one-third, is destroyed. Okay, what does the one-third uh, refer to? Well, uh, the, as, as I tried to describe that uh, Revelation 12 and the, the great controversy theme, that this is the center of the book of Revelation, and then everything else around it, the seals, the trumpets, the bowls, uh, they're a description of this conf cosmic conflict, okay, which we begins here in Revelation 12. Remember the large red dragon Okay, that's described, and with his tail he swept away one-third of the stars of the sky. Okay, remember the numbers in Revelation primarily have a, a theological significance. <clears throat> and so the, the link here between one-thirds, it's uh, I think not uh, accidental. Okay, and I'll again quote Dr. Tonstead here, that when the influence of Revelation 12 is felt, the recurring third suggests a sense that will not be a reference to quantity, but an answer to the question, Who? The thirds under the trumpet serve as a signifier of agency and therefore as a telltale sign of demonic activity. <clears throat> the revelator perceives in these thirds the fingerprint of Satan on all the instances of disaster and suffering that he catalogs. 
Okay, so the, the thirds in the trumpet sequence brings us back to the third of the stars uh, that fell in heaven. And I think uh, it becomes even more clear as we just read through the trumpet sequence that we get to the third trumpet, a great star fell from the sky. Well, who's that? I bet if, I bet if all of you just pulled out your Bible here in the Revelation 8.10, you'd have a little footnote. The great star that fell from the sky, and that footnote would take you to Isaiah 14. How you have fallen from heaven, O shining star, bright morning star. Okay, this is referring to uh, the same fall. Okay, it's to bring us back to uh, Isaiah. Okay, remember uh, Jerome here in the Latin translated this as Lucifer. Okay, so the great star fell. We come to the fourth trumpet. Okay, the fourth angel blew his trumpet. A third of the sun was struck. A third of the moon. Okay, that darkening just like we saw in Joel. A third of the stars so that their light lost a third of its brightness. There was no light during a third of the day and a third of the night also. Okay, and if we have any doubt who's behind the locusts in Revelation, um, I think it, it's, there's no ambiguity in Revelation. Oh, well, just uh, another point here about uh, the, the sun and the moon darkening in Joel, just as we saw in Revelation. Again, who's behind the, uh, what's going on in the trumpet sequence? I think the fifth trumpet becomes quite clear. I saw a star that had fallen from earth to the sky. Remember the third trumpet. We see the star fall. And now here in the fifth trumpet, the star that had fallen. It's telling a story. I saw a star that had fallen to earth from the sky. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And when he opened it, smoke poured out as though from a huge furnace. And the sunlight and air turned dark from the smoke. And then locusts came from the smoke and descended on the earth. And they were given power to sting like scorpions. Okay? And... A description on the locusts. The locusts look like horses, ready for battle. Okay, we could have a slide here that would parallel a lot of the similarities between the locusts and Joel in Revelation. Uh, but let's just read it. On their heads, they had what seemed to be crowns of gold, and their faces were like human faces. Their hair was like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. Their chests were covered with what looked like iron breastplates. And the sound made by their wings was like the noise of many horse-drawn chariots rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like those of a scorpion, and it is with their tails that they have the power to hurt people for five months. Okay, so we're reading along. We're wondering here what the locusts refer to. And we just come to a verse that uh, I think makes it very clear. They have a king ruling over them, who is the angel in charge of the abyss, the one we've just been reading about. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. In Greek, his name is Apollyon, meaning the destroyer. Okay, so when we get to Revelation, the, the king of the locusts, the one in charge of the locusts, um, I mean, I think we, we have to assign a, a, a demonic um, agency to this. Now, is it fair to, to take all that information, taking the Bible as a whole, bring it back to the book of Joel, where we know how the Old Testament uh, expresses some of these things, and to now see a, a satanic agency in all of this? Um, I think it is. Okay, we read on in the trumpet sequence. Remember in Joel, these locusts, they're powerful, too many to count. Well, in Revelation, I was told the number of the mounted troops. It was 200 million. Would that qualify as being too many to count? And in my vision, vision I saw the horses and their riders. They had breastplates, red as fire. Okay, and again, all of these things that happen, they have sulfur coming out of the horses' mouths. Okay, and we move through the trumpet sequence. In Revelation, 
and the seventh trumpet, we thank you, God, that you have taken your great power and have begun to rule. The time for the dead to be judged. The time has come to reward your servants, the prophets, and all your people. The time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. Okay, and the end of Joel has um, the same kind of peril. Notice, what do we see here? God is finally taking charge. And we have a judgment scene. And some will be rewarded and some will be destroyed. Okay, we see the same thing in the end of Joel, the very end of Joel. I will restore the prosperity of Judah and Jerusalem. I will gather all the nations and bring them to the valley of judgment um, or the valley of decision. There I, the Lord, will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. They are very wicked. Cut them down like grain at harvest time. Crush them as grapes to be crushed in a full wine press. That's Revelation again until the wine runs over. Okay, so we have the same thing. I'm moving forward in the story to judgment, uh, God's rule. Um, and the last verse in Joel, I, the Lord, will make my home in Jerusalem with my people. Remember when we talked about Revelation, we said that the, the seals, the trumpets, the bulls, they're, they're not chronological, they're, they're overlapping. And so when we come to the end of the trumpets, we're really coming to the end of the story. And of course, the Revelation ends with the same kind of thing. Now God's home is with people, he'll live with them. It's the same kind of an ending that we have in Joel, very condensed in the book of Joel. Okay, so um, again, I would, I would see Joel as here, we're involved here in this cosmic conflict with a, a, the very, uh, the reality of a demonic agency. Now, what does it mean, understanding the symbols? Okay, this is where it becomes dangerous here. We're making, we just made a kind of a very big picture, but can we put something specific on it? Uh, what does it mean? Um, well, this is a, it's war imagery, but the war that broke out in heaven, do we imagine that with tanks, lightning bolts, machine guns? What kind of a war was that? Uh, we tried to describe the, the original war in heaven. This is one of our ideas that had deception, really, at its, uh, the, the, the focus here, deception about God. This was not a, a war that was fought with uh, military and so on. Can we understand war imagery sometimes as applying to uh, those kinds of descriptions? Well, in Revelation, the power of these locusts here, they have tails and stings like those of a scorpion. It's with their tails they have the power to hurt people. Okay, and uh, the tails here sometimes in the Bible, this is from Isaiah, um, are described uh, in this way. In a single day, the Lord will punish Israel's leaders and its people. He will cut them off head and tail. The old and honorable men are the head. The tail is the prophets whose teachings are lies. Maybe we could make an application there that, you know, the tales here, that this is a, perhaps a deception. And I think I'd be okay with a military uh, imagery, but I don't think that's the most important. I think the most important is deception. Even with the, what we've gone through in this Bible study, we've talked about the Assyrian captivity. Okay, but the captivity wouldn't have happened if there wasn't first deception. And here in Hosea, which is right before the captivity, the Lord says, let no one accuse the people or reprimand them. My complaint is against you priests. Night and day you blunder on, and the prophets do no better than you. And notice, my people are destroyed because they do not know me. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as my priests. So we have deception involved here. And the real problem is you don't know me. Now, was there war? Yes. I mean, they were brutally destroyed by the Assyrians and carried off into captivity. But what was more important was that they were deceived. And what were they deceived about? Okay, they did not know God. Okay, and then, the, then there was military conquest. 
Could make the same point about the Babylonian captivity. Um, our next book uh, after this year will be Jeremiah. But a similar kind of thing. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? My own priest did not know me. Again, the significance of to know God, the people were deceived. Okay, that was the most important thing. Was there war? Was there uh, brutality? Yes, they were brutally um, taken off into captivity by the Babylonians. Okay, but the more important thing is that they were deceived. Okay, the last book of the Old Testament, kind of a book that leads us into uh, the, the Pharisees and how they were deceived. Same thing about the priests here in Malachi. It is the duty of priests to teach the true knowledge of God. People should go to them to learn my will because they are the messengers of the Lord. But now you priests have turned away from the right path. Your teaching has led many to do wrong. And we have the people in Jesus' day who were deceived. Okay? God came in human form and they didn't know him. And uh, I've mentioned so many times the, the good exterior things that they were doing. Okay, they were, remember Jesus said, you search the scriptures. They knew their Bibles very well. Okay, they never missed church. They kept the Sabbath. Jesus commented, you know, you even tie the small little seeds, the anise and so on. They were even known as health reformers. Certainly they kept the law. They were missionaries. Remember Jesus said, you someone, send someone halfway around the world to win one convert. And when you do, he's as much a ch child of hell as you are. So, you know, they had a pretty good list. Okay, I don't have a problem with this list, but there was one thing they were missing. They were deceived about God. Okay, they saw Jesus and, you know, in their mind, God, the Messiah, completely incompatible uh, with, with Jesus. Okay, so, yeah, again, were they destroyed? Yes, they were destroyed in the Babylonian captivity. There was war, but the more important thing is they were deceived. Remember Jesus' words to these people who had this pretty good external list. You are of your father the devil, and you want to follow your father's desires. From the very beginning, he was a murderer. He's never been on the side of truth. There's no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he's only doing what is natural to him because he is a liar and the father of all lies. So again, the, the ultimate problem was deception. They were deceived about um, a true knowledge of God. And yes, they were destroyed. There was military conquest. So I think we could merge both of these images, deception and then... Uh, military conquest uh, as well. And just as a final point here, deception, I think, is the key thing in the book of Revelation. We, we have a contrast, um, a, a very uh, interesting contrast between the slaughtered lamb and a beast. And the, the way that the beast works, notice the description here. Remember, the central image in Revelation is the slaughtered lamb, okay, the one who's able to open the scroll, the one who's worthy, the slaughtered lamb. And uh, how does the beast operate? Uh, operates by imitation. Notice the description here. I saw one of its heads as if it had been slaughtered and his fatal wound was healed. Uh, in the Greek, this is exactly the same as Revelation 5, 6. The lamb looked like he had been slaughtered. And now we have this other beast, that one of its head as if it had been slaughtered. Okay, the key thing here is imitation. This is imitation of Christ. Okay, it's false, but the, the key thing that was uh, deceptive is it's like the slaughtered lamb. Okay, that looked like it was, his fatal wound was healed. And notice the result here of the deception. The whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. Everyone worshiped the dragon. Okay, why do we spend so much time talking about the demonic? Well, if you know the end of the story here, everyone worshiped the dragon. 
Okay, well, it would be pretty important to understand what, uh, what the dragon is up to, and it's imitation. Okay, we read on in the same chapter in Revelation 13, another beast came up out of the earth. He had two horns like those of a lamb. Okay, why imitate a lamb? Okay, this is imitative of the real lamb, the slaughtered lamb. Imitative, okay, that uh, had two horns like those of a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. Okay, so Revelation is not describing, you know, everyone worships the beast, that everyone is, um, you know, keeping Halloween and doing Ouija boards and things like that. No, these are very religious people who think they are following the lamb. Okay, but it's, uh, it's the wrong lamb. So that's why uh, so central here. What's our picture of God? Is the slaughtered lamb, is that our picture of God? Okay, and a last slide here. Again, so we've said deception here is the key in Revelation. And I think five times in Revelation we're told, okay, this is it. This is it. Okay, the book of Revelation opens this way. This is his report concerning the message from God and the truth revealed by Jesus Christ. Okay, what truth did Jesus reveal? And it's repeated again here in Revelation 12, where the dragon was furious with a woman, went off to fight against the rest of her descendants. All those who obey God's commandments, and we often leave off the rest here, and are faithful to the truth revealed by Jesus. I mean, what did Jesus say again and again? What truth did he come to reveal? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Eternal life is to know God and how do we know God? Through Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be faithful to the truth revealed by Jesus. Again, it's so repetitive. Revelation 19. I am a servant together with you and with other believers. Okay, what can we say about the believers? All those who hold to the truth that Jesus revealed. Worship God for the truth that Jesus revealed is what inspires the prophets. Okay, that, again, that's the central imagery, the truth that Jesus revealed. Okay, and finally in Revelation 20, this is always the, the hallmark of the people that are on the right side and the conflict. I also saw the souls of those who had been executed because they had proclaimed the truth that Jesus revealed and the word of God. Okay, so I think uh, in the Bible we have these images which are sometimes uh, somewhat difficult to sort out. You know, the, the Bible opens with uh, deception. You know, the, the serpent in the tree, did God really say to you, um, that uh, you can't eat any fruit in the garden. Oh, God's a liar. It, it's deception right in the beginning. Okay, and we have these images that are difficult to sort out. I think what we see in the locusts, especially if we incorporate the locusts in Revelation, is uh, who the real destroyer is. And it just kind of reminded me, we have these uh, worthless ID cards at the VA. They just come out and uh, everyone has to have one. And can you see anything from there? Yeah, they're terrible. When, you, when I'm rounding in the hospital and I'm talking with someone, I have no idea who they are because it's in really tiny little print. Okay, you can't read it. Okay, but on this card, there's a little chip and it has my fingerprints, my social security number, my driver's license. It has all kinds of personal information uh, that's on this card. Okay, and I think uh, what the, the point I'm trying to make here is it's very important that not only that our picture of God is correct, but I think what we see in the locusts here and in the trumpet sequence is the DNA, the fingerprints, the driver's license, uh, social security number um, of the adversary and what he's up to. All right, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, uh, thank you so much for a wealth of information on all of this that is difficult to put together. Help each one of us to be on the journey to understanding what is true. That, um, 
that we would at least settle on doctrine number one, the most important thing is that we are faithful to the truth revealed by Jesus. And as we're faithful to that truth, pray that you would open up more light in other areas for each one of us. Amen.